evening. Could all take your seats. Well, this theatre is full, the Overflow Theatre is full, and we've turned many other people away. Uh, certainly an expression of interest in the uh, legacy of Marx and Marxism at a time when you would expect, perhaps, an interest in Marx and Marxism to renew itself. So welcome to all of you to a special Ralph Miliband public event on the title, as you can see there, Revisiting Marx, Is Marxism Still Relevant? A topic, of course, that it would be very dear to Ralph Miliband himself and that engaged him all his working life. This event brings together three leading social and political thinkers to debate the contemporary meaning and relevance of Marx's legacy on the occasion of one, not the global financial crisis, although that's a good context, but on the occasion of the republication of the Communist Manifesto with a special introduction by David Harvey. That book and others by these gentlemen are available outside afterwards. If you want to leave this theatre and go home this evening, you have to buy one. Uh, <laughs> you don't, of course. Let me tell you something about our speakers. David Harvey is a distinguished professor of anthropology at the Graduate Center of the University of New York. He's the author, of course, of many books, many of which you no doubt have read, including The Condition of Postmodernity, The Limits of Capitalism, The Urban Experience, and his most recent publication, The New Imperialism. Meghna Desai is a, was, of course, Professor of Economics here. He's Emeritus Professor of Economics here at the LSE. He's the founder of the Center for the Study of Global Governance, which Mary Calder and I nurture now in his absence. Um, he is, of course, uh, the author of a number of books, including, most recently, Marx's Revenge, The Resurgence of Capitalism and the Death of Statist Socialism. And he is one of the great uh, active life peers as Baron Desai. Uh, he was made a life peer in 1991. And he squares, of course, a commitment to the, the throne, the peerage, with a hearty commitment to Marxist thought as well. Leo Panich is Professor of Political Science at York University in Toronto, Ontario. He's a distinguished research professor, uh, political economist, Marxist theorist, and the editor of that very well-known uh, uh, Socialist Register. He has just published um, uh, a, new, a book called Renewing Socialism. It's the second edition, actually, of a book already that bears that title. And he is, of course, the author of many articles and books himself. Perhaps one of his best known was The End of Parliamentary Socialism in 1997. But Renewing Socialism is also available outside if you wish to go home. Now, our guests will speak on the theme of tonight's big topic for about 15 to 20 minutes each. And once they've finished, of course, we will turn the uh, event over to yourselves and take questions from you. So please join with me in giving our three speakers a very warm LSE welcome. <laughs> David, you're speaking first. David Harvey. You know, um, Darwin once uh, commented that uh, it's not the strongest that survive, nor the smartest that survive, but the most adaptable. And, uh, of course, Marx had a very complicated relationship with Darwin, admiring much of what he had to say, but also critical of it. But I think he might have liked that particular statement. Uh, capitalism has been astonishingly adaptable over the years. And one of the problems I have actually at this particular moment 
uh, with some of my Marxist colleagues is that they're sort of jumping up and down and saying, yay, the contradictions have come home to roost. And you say, well, yeah, but in a different form. And the big task for us, which is one of the things I confronted in writing the introduction to the Communist Manifesto, is how to try how to try to take the inspiration that comes from Marx, the tremendous insights that come from Marx, and make them relevant in some way to understanding uh, our time. Now there are a number of issues here that I think one can take up. Uh, in my own analysis, for example, uh, from a Marxian perspective, I understand the history of neoliberalism since the 1970s as having been a class project. A class project which was about the restoration and the consolidation of class power. In the mobilization of that project, certain ideas were corralled as being fundamental to what that project was ideologically about, which is where neoliberal theory came in. But by the time you get to 1982, it should be being clear from the Chilean experience, also from the experience in this country, that theoretical neoliberalism simply did not work. And in any case, it had not been that fundamental to the nature of the class project. As I understood it in the book on the brief history of neoliberalism, what I argued was that the teething ground for this class project was really set in New York City during the fiscal crisis. And I think there's an interesting parallel which I'm, you can immediately think of, which is, is what happened to New York City in 1975 now being done globally? And I think that this is something we should really think about. Because in 1975, the investment bankers, in effect, struck against democratically elected governments of New York City. And they imposed certain rules and came to certain determinations as to what their project was going to be about. And their project, as I understood it, boiled down to two very practical concerns with a third sort of added on. The first concern was that you should always pay mind to the well-being of financial institutions. That uh, the investment bankers were having a difficult time themselves for all sorts of reasons. And what they set up was the golden rule of the neoliberal era, which is that in the event of a conflict between the well-being of financial institutions and the well-being of a people, you choose the well-being of the financial institutions. I would submit to you that certainly in the United States when that three-page document came out a little while ago, that's exactly what it was doing. Now the other rule they set up was that government was going to have to change its mission. That is, certainly government was going to have to withdraw from social provision and for helping people and all the rest of it. The role, role of government, however, was going to be redefined and it was going to be redefined around the idea that government existed to create a good business climate. That was what its mission was. 
And that meant doing all kinds of things like privatization, transforming the structures of governmentality, transforming uh, all sorts of institutions, including, of course, attacking labor organization and the like. And in creating a good business climate, the legitimation for that was if you create a good business climate, then you'll get economic development and then, you know, a rising tide will you know, raise all boats you know, or something will trickle down or, you know, some sort of watery metaphor of that kind uh, as being legitimation for what was to be done. Now, in this struggle, there was, I think, a struggle over the privatization of the surplus. And actually what's interesting is that the extent of government's role in GDP and all the rest of it has remained fairly constant since the 1970s. It's not been a shrinkage very much. A few here and a few there and in other cases expansions. But what has changed is the way in which government is organized. We talk about governance these days, not government. And that's about public-private partnerships. And as I can recall writing them now nearly 20 years ago, when you go into a public-private partnership, this always means that the public bears the risk and the private takes the profits. And what all of this means when you look at it is that actually what has been going on is not the end of neoliberalism, but actually its culmination when you view it as a class project. That the way in which financial institutions are being favored over people, the way in which government is being reconstructed in such a way as to, in fact, interweave with the private sector. I mean, the craziness in the United States of taking positions, they call it positions, they're nationalizing much of the banking system without exercising any control. The craziness of that cannot be explained except in terms of the perpetuation of that particular class project. Now to be sure, a lot of people on Wall Street have been hurt. But there's a famous saying, I think, by Andrew Mellon way back, which said, in a crisis, assets return to their rightful owners. And what we're seeing is actually a consolidation of class power, not its diminution. And we're seeing on Wall Street, for example, four major consolidated banks, which are huge, huge institutions with immense power. What we're seeing is the formation of a new government in the United States where almost certainly that government will have to incorporate Wall Street at its very heart. So the government is going to be in Wall Street and Wall Street's going to be in the government. There's not going to be any radical change on that and what's going on. In other words, it seems to me that at this particular conjuncture, what we've got is the culmination of a class project. A culmination in which, in effect, we're going to be soon living under the dictatorship of the world's central bankers and the world's treasury departments. Democracy has almost entirely disappeared. There's almost no position for democratic governance. There is, if you like, a financial takeover of all of government, which is exactly what happened in New York City in 1975 to 1977. It is a rerun of all of that, a culmination of it on a much, much larger scale. Now what this says then is that if that is the predetermined outcome, and I think it is, of what we're going through, 
that indeed the people are going to suffer, but now it's going to be everybody. When we had the disciplining of Mexico in 1982, when Mexico nearly went bankrupt, these institutions like the IMF that the Reagan government wanted to defund because they did not conform to neoliberal orthodoxy, the IMF was restructured and reorganized to make sure that Mexico paid off its debts to the Wall Street bankers at the same time as the population of Wall Street of, of Mexico suffered. Now we're seeing that again being played out big, big time. So here is, if you like, the situation. With one big difference, however, because for the last 30 years we've been given a neoliberal legitimizing line about individual liberty, freedom, personal responsibility, etc., etc., etc. What we're going to find, I think, over the next few years is a legitimacy crisis. Because you cannot now get away with the idea that somehow or other this is just about free markets and free trade and free everything else. It's not. It's about monopoly control, and in fact it always was about monopoly control. But it's now about monopoly control, and it's monopoly control on the part of certain class forces. At this particular historical moment, I don't see the class forces in position to resist this. What I do see, however, is a very serious kind of problem of how do you legitimize what is going on to the mass of the people who are going to suffer while this power gets consolidated further and further and further in fewer and fewer hands. Last week there was a hearing before a congressional committee. Four hedge fund managers were asked. Each of them had received in personal remuneration the year before more than three billion dollars each. Now, I thought it was outrageous a few years before when hedge fund owners pulled down 250 million in personal remuneration in one year. Now, look at what's happening. Look at that consolidation of power. And from my standpoint, it would seem that we have to be very clear about what is happening in those simple class terms. The parallel with New York City, the globalization of that, the configuration of government and finance more or less as a unit is leading us back into a kind of world which is rather, I think, terrifying to contemplate, particularly in relationship to one of the other features which I think we have to understand. The growth rate of capitalism since its inception around 1750 or 1780 has been about 3% per annum. Growing at 3% per annum when most of capitalism and market activity was confined to a sort of 50 mile radius of Manchester and a few other hot spots is one thing. Trying to find a way to renew at 3% growth for the next 30 years when you have a $40 trillion economy and it's going to double in the next 20 years according to Gordon Brown and then double 20 years after that, what kind of economy is that going to be? What kind of world are we going to live in? In other words, the monopoly power, which is going to have to find a way to re-establish a 3% growth rate 
is going to have a very, very difficult time doing it when you configure that the current economy is made up of everything going on in China and East Asia and everything that's going on in Europe and North America and much of Latin America and much of the Middle East and South Asia and all the rest of it. In other words, this is a very, very different situation we are in. And at this point, we have to start thinking seriously for all sorts of reasons about alternatives to what capitalism is about. It is not clear to me that capitalism can adapt out of this, except through, in a, in a way, just taking over complete monopoly and, of course, increasingly militaristic forms of power. And that is something I think we should all be prepared to resist. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. It's a great honor to be here in, a, in a, this fantastic new, uh, new facility at LSE, uh, and of course in the company of David Harvey and Leo Panich, and chaired by David Held. Uh, is Marxism still relevant? I think Marx is. I'm not sure about Marxism. And if I'm sure about Marxism, I said that Leninism is not relevant. Uh, and Leninism, uh, I may have time to say something about, fosters delusions in the populace. Uh, there's a lot of harm. Marx, I think, and I know, is still relevant because I still use Marx to understand capitalism. Marx, all his life, was a student of capitalism. His critique of political economy was all about that. And I think the insight I get from Marx is that capitalism is a cyclical, disequilibrium, dynamic process in which crises, such as the present one, are not dysfunctional. They are entirely functional. That's entirely the way the system renews itself. The system, because it's unregulated, and despite all sorts of uh, generations of regulations, Virtually, the system is unregulated. And in the cycles of accumulation through financial mechanisms and uh, uh, innovations and uh, spreading to different regions and so on, capitalism renews itself, but it always overreaches. And when it is overreached, there is a crash. And in the crash, as David was saying, basically, consolidation takes place. All kinds of... Uh, uh, bets that people had taken, which were uh, for a while profitable, but after a while they get more and more risky and less and less profitable, and eventually a crash comes. The system renews itself, and then it resumes. Uh, and uh, one of the most remarkable thing uh, I find is that uh, since, as uh, again as David says, since about 1750. Capitalism has uh, survived, grown, expanded, and at the same time, it has had cycles. There's also been cycles in the ideological structures supporting capitalism. It's not always just liberalism, but I want to come to that in a minute, but also been uh, state support. 
state support, social democracy, is as much a part of an ideology of capitalism as is uh, uh, neoliberalism. And capitalism finds itself very astute at using uh, both sorts, all sorts of ideologies because it is a fantastically flexible system. In 1857, when he was struggling away in the British Museum Library, early days of, of forming a critique, there was a financial crisis. And for a while, Keynes was worried. I'm sorry, Marx was worried. Sorry, silly mistake. <laughs> Talking on Keynes as well. <clears throat> for a while, Marx was worried that capitalism may end before he had finished his critique. The danger soon passed. Uh, and, and he had plenty of time to finish his critique. And beyond that, and here we are still. Uh, but I think, in a sense, we have all been rather lazy, intellectually. Because every time something happens, we clutch Das Kapital. I don't know how, why, why Sarkozy was clutching Das Kapital. It's a wrong volume anyway, but I won't go into that. Uh, <laughs> volume one is nothing about financial cycles. Uh, but uh, we all clutch this book and we say, ho, 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 Chi Minh, or whatever we, we used to say. <laughs> but the serious work of completing Marx's project of understanding capitalism as a dynamic disequilibrium system has yet not been finished. Marx didn't actually uh, take an easy job. He really wanted to understand from first principle and the deepest theoretical system then available to him, which was classical political economy. He wanted to use classical political economy and as it were, transcend it, using it to fashion a critique which would demonstrate to him and to the world at large that the system that he was studying was uh, subject to these uh, persistent cycles, crises, and so on, and in the course of the crisis it, it has cycles of prosperity and misery, and he would like to have predicted uh, its final outcome. Uh, but despite all rumors to the contrary, he did not predict. And he certainly was no astrologer, and he did not say capitalism would come to an end you know, in 2000 AD or some such nonsense. Uh, later on, after the Bolshevik Revolution, we all, all got into this addiction that capitalism was in a terminal crisis and all that sort of stuff. Uh, the system predicting terminal crisis has disappeared, uh, and capitalism still goes on. Why does it go on? And I think I disagree in one thing with uh, David Harvey. Uh, I don't think the project of theoretical neo, uh, neo, uh, neoliberalism, what is called, is dead at all. It's alive and well. And the most remarkable thing, and I know people will shake their heads in despair, China and India would not be in the position today had it not been for neoliberalism. Globalization is the latest phase for the first time in two centuries has finally got Asia into the mainstream of capitalism as seriously uh, a powerful competitive countries. Now that would not have happened, it did not happen in the great days of Keynesian economics 1945 to 1975. It didn't because in those days the de developing countries could only get official aid and nothing else. But once the flow of private capital started, and it started because profitability declined in the West, and 
capital, as in the famous word of Shivanandan, capital released itself from labor and left the Western coasts and went to Asia, to Latin America, and wherever it is. So it was a cycle of profitability that started the project of neoliberalism, and it was to restore profitability that all that political change happened. And I don't think Thatcherism failed. Just because something caused a lot of misery, that's not failure, that is success. Profitability was restored. Profitability was restored in the British economy. You know, I mean, we don't have all sorts of junk industries anymore, thank God. It was painful, but it was restructured. And restructuring is always a painful exercise. America is about to go through a very painful restructuring because Detroit will have to go. It is obsolete. It's, it, it doesn't matter that there are better cars being made by Ratan Tata in Mumbai. So we don't need that. And one, one of the great things about capitalism is it has no nation, it has no morality, and it has no sympathy. It is, it's a system of profitability. And given that it is, in the last, well, in the latest phase of globalization, what has really happened is that the tired old Western countries, which were living off their old capital, have now been shaken up, and manufacturing has, has uh, migrated to Asia. It will migrate again from Asia. It won't stay there. There is no loyalty. If profitability declines in China and India, industry will go somewhere else. So, in a sense, what we have is a dynamic of capitalism in which, you know, Western countries are feeling very poor, thank you very much. Uh, but the, the amount of wealth created in China and in India, and at least, I don't know how many, but somewhere between five to eight hundred million people taken out of poverty, which has never happened in any phase of history before. So theoretical neoliberalism was not at all a failure. Just because we are feeling sorry for ourselves at this end, uh, it doesn't mean the rest of the world has to be sorry. And it is also a remarkable cycle, a remarkable development of financial institutions, which allowed, much to the uh, now regret of Americans, for allowed Americans to have a, a fantastically great consumption binge, run double deficit. Despite that, prices where inflation was low and money supply was high and Alan Greenspan thought he was doing it all himself but all it was the shift of manufacturing to China had made manufacturing cheap because China was exporting manufacture to uh, the West that kept prices low and China then loaned back all the surplus it had in the US Treasury bills that was possible because of the financial revolution and we had 15 long years of unprecedented prosperity and a 15 long years of a boom across the world not just in western societies across the world has never happened before in the history of the world and all good things come to an end so it's a hangover and uh, of course there'll be consolidation, of course there'll be political. But I, I don't actually believe that this undemocratic anything like that. I mean, it will go on like this, there will be democracy, there will be opposing forces. Uh, the left, of course, is dormant because it has kind of, you know, uh, even bigger hangover than, uh, than capitalism. Uh, but in a sense, I don't think that democratic forces are ever, ever defeated. 
people will organize, people will try uh, uh, different things. And it's a, the most democratic force for me <coughs> is the fact that when the new in, international financial architecture is drawn up, it will not be drawn up by the powerful Western countries. And they are debtors. You don't let a bank be run by debtors. The bank will be run by lenders, and lenders will be China and India and South Korea. So the, the complete, we've been waiting for years to have the old global order of 1945 redone and all that. And you know, we tried to do it through activism and requests and prayers and all that. And wow, the markets have done it for us. The financial markets have wiped out all sorts of reputation that uh, the UK and the USA had. I mean, the UK and the USA still think they're running the world, but you know, that's because they speak English and the Chinese don't. Uh, and that, that, that doesn't matter. But the China and in, uh, Asian, the saving countries of Asia are going to reshape the financial architecture of the world. And when they do it, they will extract a proper price for lending money to the West. Uh, they will also create structures in which the dollars gained from seniorage, the fact that Chinese had to put money in the US Treasury bills, there's no other market deep enough to do it. They will have to change that. We'll have to get some better, uh, uh, better international assets created. So I think uh, we have to think of capitalism as a, for me, still a progressive project. It has not exhausted itself. When it exhausts itself, as the old man predicted, something better will come. But so far, all the experiments which have been tried in the name of socialism and in the name of Marx have been travesties of his humanistic philosophy. They just have been statist, corrupt dictatorships which have exploited people. And if I think North Korea is Marxist, you know, I would have given up. Uh, but that's one of the few Marxist societies left. Uh, so I think we have two tasks. We have, first of all, as, as academics and intellectuals, we have to go back and find out what is still incomplete in Marx's own original project. A great project to understanding capitalism, make a critique of it, renew it, revise it, and, 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 try, and try and make it better. And secondly, we have a serious uh, pr uh, program of not still living in delusions of 1968 or 1917 or whenever. I really try and understand why is it that people out in the streets of India have taken to capitalism? Why people in China have taken to capitalism? Why did China give up its, its uh, Stalinist uh, development model and, and, and take to capitalism. Why is it that capitalism, despite all the misery it causes, still offers a lot of people a hope of a better life? And even as people are uh, disappointed, they still really live in hope. And I think until we understand that, and that, that dynamic is, is there in Marx. Marx is not a sentimentalist about capitalism. Uh, he understands this, and he understands why it will grow uh, to, to more and more uh, countries, and you can just read the Communist Manifesto in his, in his new, I uh, think, new preface by David Harvey, to see what a dynamic celebration of globalization it is. Of course it says it'll, it'll you know, he's you know, he's 30 year old man, so he says, you know, uh, you know, uh, 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 so Sturm and Drang, you know, uh, there'll, there'll be all kinds of uh, problems with it. But he didn't put a date on it. The date was put onto it by, by his followers. He did not actually give us delusions. He gave us hard analytical things. And we fail in ourselves.
if we do not take the analytical thought seriously and hope that this time of the crisis, hey, socialism is going to come. It's not going to come. Capitalism is going to be there, like it or not, and it's going to spread. Africa is still not yet there. Africa is yet to come. And until that happens, until Africa has also got into uh, capitalism like Asia has, and Asia was thought to be a basket case in the mid-60s, uh, by no, no, no less a distinguished personality than Henry Kissinger. Uh, so, there's a lot, lot, lot in capitalism left to do. Think of your mobile telephones, think of your laptops, think of your ATMs, and think of your Facebooks and there's a lot of way to go yet. Uh, there may even be Star Trek technology, and it'll be happen. And even global warming will be tackled when it becomes profitable to have a carbon efficient technology. It is not gonna happen, because Al Gore told you so. It'll happen, it'll happen when it becomes profitable for enough people to make money out of technology which saves on carbon emission. Of course, Detroit going bust would be a great help. Then we can make better cars. Thank you. Well, uh, first of all, let me thank uh, David Held for inviting me to this event, but above all, for the work he's doing in keeping Ralph Miliband's legacy alive at the LSE. Uh, the turnout this evening is evidence that Marxism is still relevant, I think. And I must say that it pleases me enormously that the event is being held in this impressive new theater. Uh, for however much I feel a certain warm nostalgia whenever I return to the LSE and speak at the old theater, as I've done a few times over the past decade or so, and this brings back memories of my student days here, exactly 40 years ago in 1968, when revolutionary rhetoric filled the old theater. Speaking tonight in this new theater makes me feel hopeful that what we're about is not making the old ghost walk about again, to use a famous phrase of Marx's, but rather renewing the spirit of revolution, to use another of his favorite phrases. Perhaps the first measure of whether Marxism is still relevant these days is the way sales of Das Kapital appear to have shot up amidst the current economic crisis. In Germany alone, from only 100 sold in 2007 to 2,500 sold so far this year. Of course, those sales pale in comparison to the numbers sold by the opportunistic Bishop of Munich, Reinhard Marx, whose decision to entitle his own book this year, which appears to be a rather traditional corporatist Catholic's appeal to class harmony in the face of the current capitalist crisis, to title his own book Das Kapital, had the effect of shooting it up to the top of the bestseller list in Germany. But this is also a measure of the crisis of neoliberal ideology. And that crisis attends the current economic crisis and is related to it, I think. There was nothing more pleasurable for me during the recent U.S. election campaign than seeing Obama elected despite the right-wing media's calling him a socialist. Indeed, one of them went even so far as to quote Marx, on from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs, and then asked Vice Presidential Candidate Joe Biden whether Obama's promise to spread the wealth around didn't make him a Marxist. I loved it. Although it was rather less pleasurable was Biden's responding to this question as though Obama had just been called a child molester. 
What may be especially significant about the outcome of this election is that most American voters didn't respond with such shock and horror to Obama being called a socialist or even a Marxist. When the day comes that they don't just shrug their shoulders in indifference at such charges, but actually see this designation as a positive one, we shall have really gotten somewhere. In this respect, there are two senses, I think, in which the question of whether Marxism is still relevant really matters today. One is whether the radical aspirations for social transformation that Marxism has represented since the manifesto was published 160 years ago, whether those aspirations are still relevant. And the other is whether the conceptual tools that Marxism has developed over those 160 years are themselves still relevant. These two questions are related, but they're not the same thing. The conceptual tools of historical materialism may indeed be necessary to understand the global capitalist world we live in and how we got here. But that does not allow us to predict the future or give us the strategic keys to getting there, even if it might point us in the right direction. So let me first take up the question of radical aspirations. What has been most troubling from my perspective about the current crisis, and I think we just heard it as well tonight, has been the remarkable lack of ambitious vision and program that has characterized the left's response to it. In the US, for instance, one saw the rather mindless populism of those like Michael Moore, who merely opposed Henry Paulson's bailout of the banks as a ripoff of the taxpayer, saying Wall Street should be left to stew in its own juices and thereby leaving aside what the dependence of people on private financial capital markets actually means. Their paychecks are deposited with banks, their pension savings are invested in stock markets, their consumption is reliant on bank credit, and keeping the roof over their heads depends on what happens to mortgage derivative markets. On the other hand, one saw reform proposals coming from the left, which appeared to be radical only because they went beyond what even the left of the Democratic Party was prepared to call for. This was seen in the two main proposals advanced by the leading left voice in financial matters in the United States, Dean Baker, who called for a $2 million limit on Wall Street salaries and a financial transactions tax along the lines of the Tobin tax. This is a perfect example, of course, of thinking inside the box, explicitly endorsing $2 million salaries and the practices of deriving state revenues from the very things that are identified as the problem, somewhat like a tobacco tax. Indeed, even additional proposals for stringent regulations to prohibit financial imprudence mostly fail to identify the problem as systemic within capitalism. At best, the problem is reduced to the system of neoliberal thought, as though it was nothing but Hayek or Friedman or Greenspan, rather than a long history of contradictory, uneven, and contested capitalist development that led the world to 21st century Wall Street. The same thing appears to be the case here in the United Kingdom where most people on the left seem to accept the notion that the Brown government's response to the crisis has involved taking the banks into public ownership. Nothing could be further from the truth as regards the extensive capital the state has poured into the private banks. No voting rights come with the preferred shares they have bought, and the company that has been created to look over the state's investment in the banks 
As his chief executive and chairman made clear in an op-ed piece in the Financial Times last Friday, amounts to this. Quote him. We must operate on a commercial basis at arm's length. The UKFI, which is the overseeing company, will not be part of the civil service. It will employ a small number of able people with high-grade financial skills. A number of serious private sector non-executives will be invited to join our board. We will follow best practice as an investor and have a clear-sighted view of our job to manage the investments of the taxpayer, not to manage the banks. This was reinforced by speeches of the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Minister responsible for the City of London on the same day. But it was already evidenced earlier in the week when the Bank of England reduced interest rates by 1.5% and when the bank said they wouldn't follow that. The government was reduced to nothing more than moral suasion in the attempt to persuade them to do so. Indeed, what has really been striking here in the past few weeks is that while Larry Elliott and Will Hutton fret that the city will respond badly to a fiscal stimulus that will be seen as excessively increasing the deficit. It has been a far from radical LSE political economist, William Boyder, a former member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee, and certainly no Marxist, who has been left to call, albeit only in his blog, for transforming the whole financial sector into a public utility. Let me quote him from his blog in September. There is a long-standing argument, Boyder writes, that there is no real case for private ownership of deposit-taking banking institutions because these cannot exist safely without a deposit guarantee and or lender of last resort facilities that are ultimately underwritten by the taxpayer. Private banks cannot self-insure against a generalized run on the banks once the state underwrites the deposits or makes alternative funding available as lender of last resort. Deposit-based banking is a license to print money. That suggests that either deposit banking licenses should be periodically auctioned off competitively or that deposit-taking banks should be in public ownership to ensure that the taxpayer gets the rents as well as bears the risks. The argument that financial intermediation cannot be entrusted to the, cannot be entrusted to the private sector can now be extended to the new transactions-oriented capital markets forms of financial capitalism. The risk of sudden vanishing of both market liquidity for, for systemically important classes of financial assets and funding liquidity for important firms may well be too serious to allow private enterprises to play. No doubt the socialization of most financial inter intermediation will be costly as regards dynamism and innovation. But if the risk of instability is too great and the cost of instability too high, then that may be a cost worth paying from financialization of the economy to so the socialization of finance. A small step for the lawyers, a huge step for mankind, who said economics was boring." Unquote. Now this sounds pretty much like the demand that Marx and Engels put forward as the fifth of the ten measures in the Communist Manifesto for immediate reform. It just goes to show you that you don't need to be a Marxist to have radical aspirations. But you do have to be some sort of a Marxist to recognize that even at a time like the present, when the most important fraction of the capitalist class in this country is on its heels, demoralized and confused, this type of radical measure, which entails a radical change in power relations in this country, it involves dispossessing, after all, what has been the strongest element of the capitalist class of its base of power, 
This type of proposal is not likely to be undertaken just by educating the ruling class to socialism overnight or by, sit or by sitting down all the stakeholders together as the third way people would tell you they'd like to do in a room. What has been distinctive to Marxism is the recognition that without the development of popular class forces through new movements and parties, this kind of proposal will necessarily fall on empty ground. And since these cannot be created overnight, this is why there is a problem with addressing radical aspirations only at times of crisis of the kind we are living through now. The question of how to encourage and develop support for radical aspirations in the face of all of the individuation, privatization, competitiveness and commodification of both personal and institutional life, when capitalism is thriving, that is the hard question. And it is with this in mind that I want to turn to the question of whether concept Marxist conceptual tools are still relevant. As I try to suggest in Chapter 3 of Renewing Socialism, there are two ways that creative intellectuals committed to social justice have related to this question of the adequacy of Marxist conceptual tools. The role of the intellectual, on one view, is to employ Marxism to help develop the theory and strategy of socialist movements, to help improve Marxist theory in light of the changing world and the changing needs of socialist movements as they confront this world. A second approach of creative intellectuals committed to social justice has entailed attempting to break the insights of Marxism to an understanding of the capitalist order, but stopping short of locating themselves, theoretically and strategically, in terms of Marxism and what it brings to the socialist movement. One should be careful not to caricature either approach. The first approach does not necessarily mean subordinating one's intellectual work to the momentary political line of a communist party. It does not require from refraining from passing critical judgment on any part of the socialist movement or on the inadequacies and even errors of Marxism itself. Precisely because this approach does not entail reducing science ideology in the narrow sense of a party school, it does not mean cutting oneself from off, off from or merely attacking other intellectuals who embrace, an, who embrace an alternative or even opposing theory to Marxism. On the contrary, the task of the Marxist intellectual on this view is to maintain a social scientific dialogue in order to incorporate the best of opposing elements into Marxism. And that was Gramsci's view in the prison notebooks. But there is no less danger that the second approach may be caricatured. Its differences with the first approach cannot be captured in a presumed rejection of Marx's famous aphorism about the point of philosophy being to change the world, not just to understand it. The work of Reinhard Bendix or C. Wright Mills or Barrington Moore or even David Held was often explicitly directed towards contributing to progressive democratic change and even sometimes justifying revolutionary change to the end of overcoming human degradation. It is, however, one of the ironies of the second approach that it sometimes leads one to be more tolerant of Marxism's weaknesses and failures than one ought to be, or than the best practitioners of the first approach are, because you don't take Marxism and the socialist movement as your own responsibility. And there is much to improve in Marxism's conceptual tools.
Sometimes it involves recapturing some classical Marxist insights that have been ignored or dismissed by subsequent generations of Marxists. This is what I believe Professor Desai and I have both been trying to do by stressing certain insights of Marx on the continuing revolutionary nature of the bourgeoisie in the sense that it is impelled by competition to this day to continue to introduce changes which revolutionize the means of production, exchange, distribution, and communication. Those who have focused on the falling rate of profit, monopolization, and capitalist crises have sometimes discounted the continuing dynamic of the bourgeoisie. There's been a tendency in too much Marxist work to look to, con to concentrate, rather, on the understanding of crises, as if these crises would themselves lay sufficient grounds for social transformation. Those who took up the study of the state in capitalist society in the 1960s and 70s, above all, I would say, Ralph Miliband, were precisely taking responsibility for Marxism and its severe conceptual weaknesses as regards the state. They were concerned to understand the role of the state played in reproducing capitalism in the face of crises. David Harvey has advanced that work enormously recently. That this work was done in this period was subsequently marginalized by those who stressed state autonomy and adopted the impoverished categories of states versus markets as conceptually and power terms external to one another, even while the state became increasingly and openly and self-descriptively capitalist in the neoliberal era, led to a very sorry departure in social science from what had been a great advance in Marxist theory. But those of us who continued working in this vein have made some progress, I believe, especially by bringing new conceptual tools to Marxist state theory in terms of understanding the internationalization of states and the development, above all, of a new non-Leninist understanding of an integrative and coordinating type of capitalist empire of the kind that's emerged under the aegis of the American state in the process of making a global capitalism. The Marxist sociological advances made in the 1970s in the refinement of class analysis to better understand the differentiation developing both within the working and middle classes were also marginalized amidst the confusions of postmodernism and poststructuralism. Yet there has been considerable progress in developing a Marxist analysis of globalization, not least in terms of understanding the process of globalization, in terms of the way the movement of capital has entailed landing on so many new and reorganized proletariats as well as on new and reorganized, professionalized middle classes, like most of us in this room. But if we are to make progress in combining advances in Marxist theory with the rekindling of ambitious popular aspirations for social change, the most important work that needs to be done, and this especially involves building on the legacy of Ralph Miliband with his monumental work on parliamentary socialism and his understanding of the limitations of the Labour Party, lies in the field of Marxist concepts that pertain to political organization. The key insight of the Communist Manifesto was that if its propensity to competition makes the bourgeoisie a revolutionary class in history, it is, it is the propensity to political organization alone that might make the working class a revolutionary class in history. 
The manifesto's stress on political organization of the proletariat into a class sounded very fresh at the turn of the 20th century, when the great mass socialist parties were just emerging. The first permanent organizations of subordinate classes in history. By the end of the 20th century, as those parties, communist, labor, social democratic, all seemed to have played out their historic role in a way that ended up blocking rather than developing subordinate class capacities for transforming society. The importance of developing Marxism's conceptual tools to better understand the process of organization was also sidelined. The manifesto's confidence that differences of age and sex would be overcome by a class organization even was problematic during the heyday of socialist party building at the beginning of the 20th century. When added to our experience with the staying power of differentiations of language, religion, race, ethnicity, and so on over the course of the 20th century, it's perhaps not surprising that post-structuralist and post-modernist stresses on identity should have blossomed as they did. But the costs have also been very severe in the way this has contributed to what my friend Bill Fletcher Jr. calls Solidarity Divided in his new book on the U.S. labor movement. In conclusion, this brings us back directly to the question of developing once again radical aspirations. Rather than assume that the communities of active and foreign citizens are ready and waiting to take up radical alternatives, the first task of irrelevant Marxism, intellectually and politically, is to work out how to actively facilitate the creation of democratic capacities. This must start with promoting the capacity for isolated individuals to discover common needs and interests with others in various diverse aspects of their lives, and then encourage the formation of collective identities and associations and capacities to the development of institutional means to determine collectively how their needs and interests might be fulfilled. This relates to the point I made earlier regarding the opportunity afforded by the current crisis for thinking ambitiously again, especially with regard to the financial system. It is highly significant that the last time the nationalization of the banks was seriously raised, at least in the advanced capitalist world, was a response to the 1970s crisis by those elements on the left who recognize that the only way to ever overcome the contradictions of the Keynesian welfare state in a positive manner was to take the financial system into public control. In 1976, the left and the British Labour Party were able to secure the passage of a conference resolution to nationalize the big banks and insurance companies in the City of London. This had no effect on a Labour government that was as determined to show its independence from the party outside of Parliament as the Blair and Brown governments have been today. In this sense, there's nothing new about new Labour. In the same year, that Labour government embraced one of the IMS for structural adjustment programs. We are still paying for the defeat of those ideas. Their proposals were derided as Neanderthal, not only by neoliberals, but also by social democrats and postmodernists. It is now necessary to build on their proposals and make them relevant in the current conjuncture. One last point, David. The scale of the crisis today provides an opening for the renewal of radical politics that advances a systemic alternative to capitalism. It would be a tragedy if a far more ambitious goal than making financial capital more prudent did not now come back onto the political agenda. 
It is hard to see how anyone can be serious about converting our capitalist economies to green priorities without understanding that we need a democratic means of planning through new sets of public institutions that would enable us to take collective decisions about allocating the investment for what we produce and how and where we produce the things we need to sustain our lives and our relationship with nature. The reason why trading in carbon credits as a solution to the climate crisis is a dead end is shown in this financial crisis. It involves depending on the kinds of derivatives markets that are so volatile and are so inherently open to financial manipulation and to financial crashes. In terms of immediate reforms in a situation where the only safe debt today is public debt, this should start with demands for vast programs to provide for collective services and infrastructures that not only compensate for those that have atrophied under neoliberalism, but also new ones that meet new definitions of basic human needs and come to terms with today's ecological challenges. But such reforms would soon come up against the limits posed by the reproduction of capitalism. That it is why it is so important to raise not merely the regulation of finance, but the transformation and democratization of the whole financial system. This would have to involve not only capital controls in relation to international finance, but also controls over domestic investment, since the point of taking control over finance is to transform the uses to which it is now put. And it would also require much more in terms of democratization of both the broader economy and the state. But without rebuilding popular class forces through new movements and parties, this will fall indeed on empty ground. And crucial to this rebuilding is to get people to think ambitiously again. However deep the current crisis, this will require hard and committed work by a great many activists as well as intellectuals. And in the end, this alone will be the measure of whether Marxism is still relevant. Well, thank you very much indeed. I mean, three very coherent, well thought out, powerful statements. If I can summarize each in one sentence. Um, first, David's emphasis on the sort of uh, the, the, the class and the class underpinnings of the neoliberal project with its very dangerous ramifications and potential negative possibilities. Magnet on the sort of extraordinary dynamic qualities of capitalism which are far from exhausted and capable of regeneration on an almost unimaginable basis and probably quite unimagined in that sense by Marx himself. And then finally, Leo, on the need to preserve many of the classical aspirations of the Marxist projects and yet we a strong emphasis on the need to rethink many of the tools and many of the policies that might follow with the warning that this may still fall on deaf ears. Three very contrasting positions. If there were time, of course, I would like them to respond to each other a little bit. But before I open it up, let me just ask one question to David Harvey, whether he wants to comment on Megnad's contribution in any way, because Megnad's in some ways, I think, stands in the starkest contribution, opposition to your own remarks. Uh, I would point out, by the way, 
that over the last 30 years, you know, we've been through many financial crises, and a good uh, half of them have been connected to urbanization and property markets, and it's a very interesting dynamic that uh, most people miss. But what, where I find myself uh, somewhat uh, disagreeing is that, um, yeah, I agree capital has no country. Uh, but then why end up with a discussion about somehow or other China and India are going to sort of confront uh, Europe and the United States as if it's the, the country configuration that is significant. I think the class configuration is significant, to be sure. If you look at you know, GNP per capita of different national economies, national economies are entirely fictitious constructions. They don't really exist, they're just an artifact of certain data collecting activities that have gone on since, this, you know, since William Pepin and all that. Uh, they don't really exist, they're sort of fictions. But if you look at GDP per capita, yes, indeed, there's been uh, a shift, and you can say it's become more equal, but if you start to look at class distinctions inside of the United States, inside of Britain, inside of Mexico, inside of India, inside of China, you'll see an enormous increase in disparities. In other words, there's a class question for me, and if capital has no country, then what aggregates are we going to be looking at? The, the, the reconfiguration of the financial architecture is going to be worked out through a class configuration, a class compromise, in which all of us are not going to have a damn simple thing to say. It's going to be worked out uh, undemocratically uh, by these sort of G30s or G20s or G50s or whoever it is, and, but it's going to be the sort of central bankers and the and the treasury apparatus is going, going to do it. I mean, this is where I think I have, I have the biggest problem with what's being Meghnad, do you want to just, can we just tempt you for a moment, a, just a moment, before we go to the audience to come back on that? No, I think uh, capitalism has no country, but the world, the political world, is lagging behind the economic world. And the political world is still organized in terms of nation states. And although I quite agree that there is, uh, there could be class alliances across the world, the bourgeoisie in, in China doesn't always have the same interests as bourgeoisie in America. And there is still uh, some of the international political economy kind of problems cannot be wished away. What I was emphasizing <coughs> was the neoliberal project had led make the unintended consequence by extending capitalism to areas it was not there before, to a empowering of Asian countries, and in as much as there is an international context, bargaining China and India will matter. Leo, final just, uh, just just sentence. Uh, uh, it, it seems to me that I, I entirely agree with that. That's really exciting uh, contribution in, in Marx's revenge. Uh, on the continuing dynamism of capitalism and of the bourgeoisie. Uh, and I think it's very important. Uh, in a sense, he's taking up a Warrenite position, for those of you who follow the old debates on, on development, as against the world systems theorists and, and uh, dependency uh, But there are a number of points in which his global Menshevik position, if I can call it that, uh, involves him bringing Marx to his side in a way that it really is, I think, uh, 
and not defensible. He actually argues that Marx would have argued for an increase in profits and privatization in the face of the 1970s crisis in Britain. Marx would not have argued. <laughs> Marx did not offer advice at the end of the state. He would have put his head to the very difficult question, which he by no means resolved, of how to build the class forces from below that David was just talking about. Uh, and I think that it, in that sense, the global Menshevik position is, is very problematic. Okay, th thank you, gentlemen. Now, I'd like to take... Um, I'd like to take questions in perhaps clusters of three. Uh, so we hear from the audience. Uh, the microphone's already gone to Mary Caldor. So would you like to start, Mary? And then there's, where's the other microphone? I can't see this. Can you bring it down here to this gentleman over here? But let's take the question from Mary Caldor first and then from you. And can we please not have statements? We want questions. And as Megnad once reminded us all, questions can have a yes or no answer. And if it doesn't form, to, if your question hasn't got that character, then it shouldn't be, probably be asked. So no statements, questions, please. Okay, Mary. Let's see if you can adhere to this. If I can do it this way. I mean, what strikes me is that, of course, Marx was brilliant in analyzing capitalism, but there was a problem that the, of material determinism, and that's been reflected in everything that we've heard. I mean, Megnard says the political world is behind the economic world. Yes, but there are moments when the political world is ahead of the economic world. The problem is they change at different paces, and that's the problem that we face at the moment. So for Megnard, somehow the solution is to be found, capitalism will somehow revive itself. Actually, in the 20s and 30s, it took a major world war, and it took the political world a real, the political world had to make a real push to revive the framework of capitalism. And uh, David bemoans the sort of lack of democracy that capitalism doesn't allow. Couldn't we be a bit more positive about democracy and think of ways in which the Green Movement and others can somehow force a solution? There's going to have to be a political, not a... It isn't there going to have to be <laughs> Thank you, Mary. I think we've, that's the question. Yes. Gentlemen over there. <laughs> Very short, please. We don't. Maybe you could just put it in your own words without the quotations. Um, Leo, you said that the uh, expansion of finance is integral to the deepening of accumulation and the continuing strength of the U.S. economy. And you said that the U.S. empire is strengthened rather than weakened by its financialization. I think the opposite has happened. I'd like you to comment on that. Um, to all the, the uh, panel, in relation to the contradictions being reproduced on an international scale, President Sarkozy of France, reflecting on the decline of US economic power, said, I'm leaving for Washington to explain that the dollar cannot claim to be the only currency in the world. What was true in 1945 can no longer be true today. And Prime Minister Putin, I think he's Prime Minister now, is it? Uh, he recently said on television, there is no question that the age of American power is finished. And he also said that uh, China and Russia 
should consider conducting their business in rules. And finally, we have come back to a multipolar system, whether US neocons or liberal imperialists like it or not. He was reflecting on the international financial system. I'd like to know what the panel's been So, thank you. Yes, question there. Bring the mic down. A recall question for Magnet, really. It's having known for 40 years, I feel like. After asking this, I feel, would you, I mean, you've turned Marx into Schumpeter. Schumpeter spoke about creative destruction and welcomed it. Marx talked about capitalism going over the bones and blood of people who didn't welcome it. Would you feel, feel so blase about creative destruction if you're one of the 17 people working at 17,000 Chinese firms that have gone out of business in the last three months? Or if you're one of the people suffering, one of the people, one of the thousands of people, farms have been suicide in India? as actually the juggernaut of capitalism, it may transform the world, it may change it. But in the process of destroying people on a massive scale, shouldn't we really be saying the racial crisis is going to do that on a much massive scale? Right. People need to be fighting back now, and not sitting back and hoping that somehow capitalism itself will solve the problems in 10 or 20 or 30 years' time. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> if I could get you to... Um, Meghna, do you want to pick up the questions just directed to you, and then briefly, and then we'll ask the others. Now, Chris, you know, as Lenin said, you can't make an uh, omelette without breaking eggs, you can't make a revolution without breaking eggs. Capitalism is a revolutionary process. People go out of business, people come back into business. Of course, that feel very bad if I were But that's in the reality, it's not a matter of sentimentality. This is a mode of production. This is about accumulation and transformation of relationships. You know, we can, we, we can play the violin if you want. But the problem is that the capitalism is going to go on and it's going to cause, uh, uh, make progress along with problems. And Marx knew that. I don't know why people are getting sentimental. Leah. <laughs> uh, no violence. I think the, uh, the question is, as Mary posed it, whether. Uh, the kind of trajectory that the states of Britain and the United States follow in the construction of their uh, political apparatuses, which has been relatively stable, uh, India and China uh, can replicate, or whether their late development and the enormous unevenness of that development will lead to a political fissure, which may be the uh, extremely reactionary level of progressive. So uh, it's not a matter of this just continuing along an economic trajectory. This will have political consequences, and we'll have to see what pattern they follow. That said, I think that Mary's distinction between a political world and an economic world uh, replicates the problems that we've had with I think the, the impoverished categories of states and markets. The political world today is capitalist. That is not to say one understands it through the logic of capitalism, uh, but it is capitalist at its core in, in the way the institutions inside states are structured, in terms of the way the uh, political agendas are set within them. It is no accident that the most progressive proposals we have on climate change today 
are constructed around market solutions of the Kyoto kind, which involve depending on derivatives market. That's not a matter of capitalists telling the state this. It's a matter of the political world operating within a historical framework that is constituted in terms of legal uh, and, and capitalist social relations. I'm not saying the political world doesn't have autonomy. I think it does. But I also think it, it, is, it is mistaken to see it as something that is not capitalist. Uh, with regard to the last question, it leads directly into what I would answer to you. Uh, I do see the making of global capitalism as very much associated with the nature of financial power in the United States, uh, with the ability of uh, Wall Street to act as a vortex to the rest of the world's capital, but also in terms of the Americanization of finance, its legal rules, and its accounting rules, in the breakup of the German model of finance, through the course of this making of global capitalism. You may not know that the largest holder of mortgage derivatives in Cleveland, <coughs> in the black communities of Cleveland, is the Deutsche Bank. And we see in the way the solution to this crisis is progressing, that indeed the American state remains central to the kind of resolution of it that David is pointing to. Uh, it's no accident that the world's capital has flown into treasury bills. And it's not just a matter of there's no place else to invest. It's a matter of the same dynamics and the same deep financial markets that led gold to flow into the United States in the 1930s when Roosevelt was being called a socialist by the bankers. Uh, so I, I, unfortunately, it is the case, I think, uh, that the American state is central to global capitalism and is central to its current crisis, I entirely agree. Where I disagree with that is that China and India uh, are about to displace, or that the ruble is about to displace the American dollar. Not at all. Uh, no, you're not suggesting that, of course not. Uh, on the contrary, the American dollar, and, and above all, the American treasury bill remains the basis for the calculation of all value in the global capitalism. You know, one of the, the frustrating things uh, in events like this is you have 15 minutes to say uh, just, a, just something. <laughs> and uh, you, you choose to do something, and of course everyone, everyone turns around and says, well, how come you didn't do something else? And uh, yeah, you're quite right. You know. um, so let me do something else just for a few minutes. Um, I, I uh, have a course on Marx is Capital is now on the web. You can take it. Um, and uh, class eight, uh, you will uh, hear me talk for half an hour uh, about a certain footnote uh, in chapter 15, volume one of Capital. And the footnote is about Marx talking about his relationship to Darwin and various other things. But in the middle of it, he says, technology discloses our relation to nature the mode of production and reproduction of our daily life and social relations that correspond to fundamental conceptions of the world. Now what's interesting about that formulation is when you look at it dialectically, if you treat it right, what you see is Marx talking about an evolutionary process, Darwinian in a way, about adaptation, the co-evolution of all of those different moments, that is, 
the technological moment, the relation to nature moment, the social relations, the production and daily life moment and the mental conceptions of the world. And actually a revolutionary transformation has to grasp all of those moments and work with all of them. And actually what's so fantastic is when you read the chapter on machinery and modern industry, with that in mind, what you see him saying is that this system which came out of the relics of the feudal system was precisely about co-evolutions of all of those elements. That is, when you're in the middle of the chapter on machinery, he talks about changing mental conceptions. Production, you no longer think of it as an art, it becomes a science and a technology. You break it up, you do things, in other words, it's a completely different understanding of the world that's involved in that. Completely different production apparatuses. New social relations, new gender relations, new patterns of daily life. All of this is co-evolving. And in no moment in, in that chapter does he use a deterministic causal argument. He doesn't say technology causes this or that causes this. It is a co-evolution of all of this. And I think to myself, let's suppose those who thought of themselves as making a communist revolution actually read that passage in that way, understood it in that way, and then thought to themselves their project was a co-evolution of all of these elements together in which the political, the economic, the mental, were all kind of being reconfigured. Recognizing, of course, that there's uneven development sometimes between them. Sometimes this is more stretched out in the avant-garde than that is, and sometimes that is. So if we thought that way, and thought about the way capitalism is, and, and, and actually it's genius, actually for working and keep co-evolving all of those moments together. And the weird way in which social scientists sometimes take one of these and say, this is the determinant one, i.e. technological determinism, you know, uh, Tom Friedman, uh, you know, environmental determinism, uh, class uh, struggle determinism, if you like to call it that, or social struggle determinism, idealism, if you like, or you kind of, or, or revolutions arise out of daily life, kind of Paul Hawking, blessed, blessed unrest kind of dynamic, you know. I mean, this, now, what we have to think of is, is, is think of, uh, of this. So when you, when, you, when you try to analyze the dynamics of a system and where you're at in that system, it seems to me you have to start looking at all of those moments as they're working together. To treat them as a, a, an ensemble or as Deleuze would say, an assemblage or something of that kind of co-evolving elements within, within the dynamics of, of a society. So this is one sort of thing that comes out of Marx when I'm reading Marx, and I kind of say, you know, this is so fantastic, it's so incredible when you start to see it this way. But you've got to go back and read it very carefully, you've got to understand it very carefully, because then you can kind of see exactly how this is working. And I know I'm going on too long, but I wanted to respond just for five minutes no, about this, because, you know, when you only have 15 minutes and you say that, then you don't say all this other stuff as it's well, and this is part of the problem. No, important. I'd like to take a few more questions. Um, unfortunately, we have to finish more or less at eight, and we could probably go on for a very long time. So I'd like to take a few questions. Can we have them very short, and then give each person on the panel a chance to make a final contribution? So the lady up there to begin with, and then the mic down here. Short, short questions, please.
how it may turn into a new model of new imperialism, how India and China themselves might have imperialist ambitions and might forget that we see the ruling class then. Thank you. Lady here in the front, yeah. Yes, we remove capitalism from the recesses of our passions. Well, give it, the, the question is, to the ex, don't answer it yet. The question is something like, to the extent that capitalism, the, you've got it. Okay, one of the panelists got it. Yes, the guy over there. M Mike, can we have the mic over here, please? Thank you. Uh, thanks. This is a really quick question, really. We've heard about um, capitalism being cyclical, but I think that's a very kind of uh, oversimplified view of Marx. Surely, what's also happening is that, in a way, capitalism is 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 aging. It's not possible politically to let certain um, industries, um, as we've seen with Wall Street, really um, uh, go bust um, because of the implications that will have on national capitals, on uh, on 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 the nation state, etc. So, if we could slightly have a bit more about um, whether we've actually seen so-called creative destruction in the last 20 years, and um, if we could also hear about who will actually have to pay for the crisis that we're about to see. I'd like to take one more question. Is there a hand pop? Oh, God, God. Yes, lady here. Sorry, guys. If you could just um, shortly comment on the institutional restructuring, and if you think it will actually follow the institutional restructuring, um, in regards to the financial architecture that you think would be rebuilt globally and that Asia would have the biggest say in it. And uh, if we could possibly link it to these dynamics of politics versus economic world. Thank you. Thank you. Before um, I give you just a couple of minutes or so each to, to finish, perhaps I could just add a comment on a brief comment of my own, and mainly I suppose it's quite a provocative one. I just want to say why I'm not a Marxist for two reasons. One is Marx's critique of capitalism, now I want you to comment on this, Marx's critique of capitalism depends, does it not, question, on a counterfactual, on a counterfactual theory that there is an alternative to capitalism in its diverse forms. Is there? And the second point is this, is Marx's great failure was not, his, in the end, his failure to answer that question. But his great failure, I think, heavy in consequences, is that he didn't understand that politics is an activity sui generis, something that liberals understood. In other words, politics doesn't follow from political economy. It doesn't follow from, it follows rather from much more complex things, fractures of coalitions, conflicts, cultures, ethnicities, nationalisms, religions, and so on. And all this means that immiseration doesn't necessarily, of course, create radicalization. Of course, there's much in Marx to admire, the theory of the concentration of capital, which others, David and others, have spoken about. But that's not quite enough to make one a Marxist, is it? Let's go in this order. Well, as to the last one, and I have, you know, as maybe you're right, but Marx did analyze politics in his three factors on France, where you would see the battle was in the city. Uh, but I'll, you know, what I, what, I, what I want to say about the alternative, 
and about uh, getting definitely a lot of her system and all that stuff. I think uh, I, I, I lay out three models in this. There is socialism within capitalism, social democracy, which has been the most successful project. Socialism outside capitalism, which was the USSR, flopped and destroyed itself. There is socialism beyond capitalism, which I think was Martin's idealist project. And he always said that that will come when capitalism exhausted all its potential. And I, I still believe that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm naive enough to believe that. Because I still think that people in India and China and, and in a lot of Africa want to get some of this prosperity which we have had. You know, it is like global warming. We have had all the prosperity and then it's okay, you know, we had enough of capitalism, that's a socialism. What about those guys? They want prosperity, they want mobile telephones, they want cars, they want, you know. And, and I think that while capitalism lays out that promise to people, it will not go away. Because politics are not politics, people want a better life. And so far, no alternative system has promised a better life. And socialism in practice flopped horribly in giving ordered mass of people a better life. The USSR was not a paradise on earth. That's why the Chinese abandoned that nonsense. And until we understand that with all these problems, a lot of people around the world like capitalism as the only way to prosper. Not every prosper, but they all want to take a bet on it. No better system has been found. So while we may, while we may feel very good about talking about uh, our revolution and all that, it's not going to happen. When 20th century has, has shown us, it's all over. That game is the problem. We'll have another game, but not this way. Is there an alternative? Well, we don't know. Uh, unless you take the view that we've arrived at the end of history. Uh, and that view of the end of history assumed there would be no more crises and the future was all liberal democratic capitalism. Uh, no, we don't know. Marx certainly did not think that the most immiserated were likely the ones who would constitute the revolutionary class. Uh, he did, in some of his passages, speak as though the working class which he not, did not see as the most in his race, would become increasingly impoverished under capitalism. Although in other uh, passages, uh, he didn't make that view. I think the key thing is whether political activity is sui generis, which is the liberal position. And it seems to me that you contradicted yourself there, because you then referred to a whole set of social relations having to do with language and ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera. All of which I think reflect the kind of rich, multi-dimensional determination that David was taking out of that footnote of Marx, uh, which liberals simply do not recognize. Uh, it, it's not that there isn't an autonomy to the political sphere, it's that it's relative. Uh, and more than that, it's not just relative, it's that over time, because capitalism is not natural but historical and social, the very forms of it penetrate the political the way it's structured. Uh, and that's why when, when uh, we have had the type of revolution through states that has involved, I think, changing uh, economies that were capitalist to something else uh, owned by the state, insofar as states weren't changed and morality wasn't changed and culture wasn't changed, 
uh, yes, you've got the kind of disappointments and works that, that Mignet's talking about. Now, it is, uh, and that has a lot to do with the question about institutional restructuring. Uh, and I think the question of whether Marxism is still relevant has very, very much to do with whether there will be a creativity amongst uh, Marxist intellectuals and Marxist activists in terms of institutional restructuring, in terms of creating new kinds of parties that are above developing class capacities rather than electing career representatives to the state, uh, about whether we can imagine and then to be construct alternative political institutions that even when radicals are elected to them, are oriented to putting resources into the society so that those with least power have the capacity to organize themselves, which is the old image of the cadre, of course. But that always has stopped when that cadre has entered the state as a representative. Uh, these are the kinds of challenges that a Marxism faces. In my view, uh, capitalism, I agree with you, and I think David in this respect, it's difficult to speak of capitalism as aging. Uh, it remains very dynamic, it's finding new forms of accumulation, and in my view, the leading arena in which those new forms of accumulation are being found are not in China and India, perhaps unfortunately, but in the fields of genetic technology, and biotechnology, uh, and nanotechnology in the United States. Uh, and that partly does have to do with the functional role of financial capital, even under neoliberalism. We'll have to see, uh, but I think that's the case. Uh, there can be, I think there already is evidence of the new imperialism uh, in China. The way the Chinese took advantage of 9-11 to deal with their Muslim minorities was an example of this. Of course there can be a new imperialism coming from the arena. Are they likely to displace the American empire in the current conjuncture of capitalism, I don't think so. Uh, who knows where it will be 50 or 100 years from now. <laughs> On the question of, uh, of, of passions, if you take uh, an essentialist view of human nature, uh, which presupposes you know what human nature is and it will never change, and, and if capitalism is consistent with that, then we've got a real serious problem on our hands. I don't take that position. I think human nature has evolved. Uh, and uh, indeed, to the degree it's evolved into a capitalistic human nature, <coughs> I call it that, it's capable of evolving beyond it. But that doesn't minimize the difficulty of making that transition. One of the biggest problems in the United States right now is that everybody is stuck with this ideology of home ownership as the only way in which they can actually have the right to the city. And I think there well, has to be a huge educational kind of uh, attempt to kind of say, look, there are different ways in which you can secure your livelihood and secure life and so on uh, in, in ways that uh, are not uh, based upon you know, that particular institutional arrangement. And, and we therefore have to think about how to, how to do that. And, and these, when I talk about that process of co-evolution, this is always slow. It's not just about having a radical kind of movement and, and then doing it and that's it. You know, it's going to take years and years and years and years. But it takes a long kind of view in order to start to think about the notion of society towards something radically, radically different. Um, I, in response to, to David Hill, um, okay. There's no alternative. 
1750, the global economy was $135 billion. In 1950, it's, it was $4 trillion. In 2000, it's $40 trillion. Now it's close to $50 trillion. In 20 years' time, it'll be $100 trillion. In 20 years beyond that, it'll be $200 trillion. Is that the world you want to live in? Is that the world you want your kids to live in? What will it be like? It will be horrendous. I did. David, I, I did. You are prepared to think of an alternative, then I'm telling you we are going to be in an incredible mess for all sorts of reasons. And if you look at the patterns and the depths and the frequency of the financial crises, one of the ways in which these 3% growth rates are actually being interrupted periodically is by wiping out more and more chunks of capital in one big thing. And that's what we're going through right now. And we're going to go through more of these, bigger ones of these, and this is the, come, the, the, the tactical problem. I actually don't know what the answer is to the tactical problem. You know, people are going to get hurt. People are being hurt all over the place. And you kind of go, well, you know, is there some way to defend? Even if it's a sort of weak social democratic kind of defense or something like that, I think that would be better than actually allowing everything to go to hell. And so to me, there's a kind of real tactical problem of what do you do about General Motors? Do you try and support it in the meantime, or do you let it go and say, oh, well, that's the way it all should go? What do you do with the workers? How does that work? I mean, this is a very difficult kind of moment in those kinds of terms, and I think that none of us, I think, can, can actually sort of, uh, sort of pretend that somehow or other, yes, we have a magic answer to this. In fact, we're going to have to make compromises. <coughs> And those compromises are actually going to be forced out of the nature of the class alliances we make. And I'm astonished when you said Marx didn't understand political moment. I mean, don't read the 18th Brumaire, for God's sake. I mean, of course he understood the political moment, you know. I mean, you'd be reading the wrong stuff. So maybe... maybe uh, maybe I'll give you a remedial reading list after. <laughs> Well, this is a fantastic discussion, and it, <laughs> and, and it could go on for a very long time. The only reason it's not going to go on for a long time is because staff need to go home, the stewards need to close up, and the lecture theatre has to shut. Otherwise, I would love to continue this discussion for a very long time. This discussion, of course, is not about me. It, it's about the fantastic contributions these three people have made. I would like to thank you for a most lively evening. And I would like to say just two things. One is, I did not say there was no alternative. I said the alternative couldn't adequately derived, be derived from Marxist thinking. That's a very different proposition. Secondly, 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 these gentlemen, at least some of them, will be signing their books outside afterwards, so be my guest. Thank you very much.